This morning we will be considering Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 33, and we will begin by reading verses 1 through 5. These are the words of God. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now, Lord, open this word to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us see, O Lord, your wisdom and your ways and your wonders with your servants who lived so long ago, our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. Instruct us, Lord, fill us up, make us strong and glad and fruitful, all to your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 26, we're going to see God calling Isaac to walk in the footsteps of his father Abraham's faith. Trusting the same true and living God, believing the same promises, and facing the same trials. Right off the bat, we see Isaac facing a famine, just like his father did back in Genesis chapter 12. Now in that day, famine was almost always caused by drought. And that cause is confirmed in our text as we go forward because you will see a constant preoccupation with water. Famine due to drought is a hardship that immediately threatened everyone and everything connected to Isaac. You have to remember that Isaac, like his father, he doesn't just have a small extended family or clan. You're talking about several thousand people connected to Isaac. When you consider all the shepherds and all the herdsmen all the wives, all the children, and you have many, many thousands of herding animals, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and so forth. This is not a small operation. Moving is not a small thing. It is a major undertaking. And there are very few things that would threaten them worse than drought and famine. It puts pressure on everyone, and especially on Isaac, who is responsible for everyone's welfare. So Isaac has to move everyone and all the animals to better watered land. Now, Egypt to the south would have been a very attractive option because it contained the Nile River Basin, which was very well watered and was not so dependent on digging wells in the desert. Egypt is where Abraham had gone during the famine of Genesis chapter 12. But instead, Isaac slides over to the west into the area of Gerar, which is part of Philistine lands and still part of the land of Canaan. But this would have been more on the coastal plain. In other words, it was closer to the Mediterranean Sea. 
And God places his stamp of approval on this move by appearing to Isaac and telling him to remain in Canaan, not to go to Egypt. And God reiterates to Isaac the covenant promises that he made to his father Abraham in verses 3 through 5. Now, these promises, if you read them on the surface, it's easy to come away with the impression that all God is promising to Abraham or to Isaac is that they're going to have a bunch of physical kids and that they're going to get the physical land of Canaan. But all along the way, as we consider those promises, and especially the way that they are addressed in the New Testament, we see that there was a whole lot more going on. First of all, you have to note the ambiguity with the words. If you look at verses 3 through 5, three different times it refers to Isaac and his descendants. And then one time it refers to Isaac and his seed, which is singular in the Hebrew. But here's the thing. All four of these words in the Hebrew is the exact same word. And it is a singular word every single time. In other words, this is a place where the old King James really comes through because the old King James says seed singular every single time here. And that's what we need to see. Because when we hear the word seed... We know that can be singular or that can be plural. It could refer to one seed. It could refer to a sack of seed. It could refer to a whole pile of seed. And so we ask ourselves, what's he talking about? Is he talking about one person here? Or is he talking about a whole bunch of people? And then there's the possibility that he's talking about one person who sums up a whole bunch of other people. And that indeed is what he's talking about here. All these promises ultimately are referring to the promised seed singular of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ sums up in himself a multitude that no man can number of all of those who are united to him by the Holy Spirit through faith. You see, there is only one person in all of human history who inherits the promises of God in their own right, and that is Jesus Christ. Anyone else who would inherit the promises of God must do so in union with Jesus Christ by faith. And this land of Canaan, certainly this was a real land. It was really promised. It was really given. It was really taken under Joshua several generations hence. But at the same time, God keeps giving these hints all along the way that he's talking about a much greater land. When God first makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he promises him the land of Canaan again. And yet when he describes the land in Genesis 15, all of a sudden God is talking about from the Euphrates River way up in Mesopotamia where Abraham first came from all the way down to the Nile River in Egypt. That's a whole lot bigger than the land of Canaan. The land is being expanded. And we begin to see that, the yes, it was a real land, really promised, really given, really taken, but at the same time, it was a picture of what Christ is going to inherit, which is the whole world and all the nations. 
And so it is a picture of that at the same time. Think about what Isaac himself knew from his parents. He knew that his birth had been promised years before he was actually born. He knew that his birth was promised to a mother who was barren all her life. And furthermore, was now too old to have children. He knew that his birth was a miraculous birth pursuant to God's promise. He also knew, because he was a lad at the time, a teenager, that pursuant to God's command, his father Abraham took him to a mountain and was about to offer him on the altar to the Lord when God stayed his hand at the last second provided a substitute and gave Isaac back to Abraham all as a picture of death and resurrection. In other words, Isaac understands that he is a picture of one who is to come. And so when you see these promises this way, you see this is a whole lot bigger than you're going to have a bunch of kids and I'm going to give you some land. This is ultimately talking about the gospel. Look at Galatians uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. But... Jesus Christ sums up a multitude no one can number of all of those in all generations who are joined to him by faith. Revelation 7 verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, in other words, all nations, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, notice what Paul does to the land promises when he quotes them in this verse. He says, for the promise that he, Abraham, would be heir of the world. Well, in Genesis, God says he will be heir to the land of Canaan. But when Paul refers to that in the New Testament, he says God promised Abraham he would be heir to the world. Cosmos, the world. How can Paul do that? Paul does that because he understood that in addition to being a really la a real land, the land of Canaan was also a picture of what Christ was going to inherit the whole world. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us as his disciples to go get. 
Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, not just individual peoples, but all the nations. That means every individual man, woman, and child, every marriage, every relationship, every family, every business, every school, every human institution, every government, everything. Make disciples of all of that, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And then he gives the same basic promise that God gives to Isaac in our text. Lo, I am with you. That is the basic promise because without that promise, you don't have anything. But with that promise, you have everything. For Christ to say, I am with you, first of all, that means I have a relationship with you. I am reconciling you to my Father. I am calling you to walk with me. I am going to be with me, you. Which means that ultimately we cannot fail in this commission that Christ has given to us. We may not grasp all of it in our lifetimes, just like Abraham didn't, and Isaac didn't, and Jacob did it. But we, all of we, all of us, countless multitude down through the generations, joined to Christ by faith, we shall not fail for one simple reason. Because Christ is with us. You only need one thing. You need Christ with you. To the end of the age. So coming back to our text in verse 6. Isaac obeys God and remains in Gerar. But while there he immediately encounters another trial. This one involving fear of harm from the local men over Rebecca, who is beautiful. And the local men are asking about her. So Isaac is afraid that they will kill him to get to her. So he says that she is his sister and does not mention that she is his wife. Verse 7. And after they have been there for quite some time, Abimelech, and by the way, Abimelech is not a personal name, it's a title. It's the title of the ruler. You will see Abimelech referred to earlier in chapter 20 when when Abraham was dealing with Abimelech. But the Abimelech that Abraham was dealing with was most likely the father or perhaps even the grandfather of the Abimelech we're reading about in our text now. So that's, that's the name for a ruler. It's like Pharaoh or king. So Abimelech um, happens to look out the window and he sees Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah and he realizes she is Isaac's wife, verse 8. So Abimelech rebukes Isaac for concealing the truth about Rebekah and exposing Abimelech and his people to guilt. Verse 9, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the People might soon have lain with your wife, and you could have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now you notice, he doesn't just say, Whoever touches Rebekah shall be put to death. He says, Whoever touches Isaac, because 
when this all comes out, there's almost certainly going to be a great deal of animosity toward Isaac for concealing the truth. But Abimelech protects them both. And he says, whoever touches either one of them shall be put to death. So in short, we see Isaac here succumbing to the same fear uh, and weakness that his father Abraham showed in chapters 12 and 20, who, when he concealed the truth about his wife Sarah on two different occasions, once with Pharaoh down in Egypt and once with Abimelech in the Philistine lands. And let me just say that we have to treat this and look at this with humility and not with contempt. Because if you consider, what, what would it be like? Like there's a, like 12 chapters of Scripture that's devoted to Abraham and Sarah and then a, a number of other chapters that are devoted to Isaac and Rebekah. If we had that much Scripture that was developed to our life, our life story, do you think there's a chance a few weaknesses might make their way into the narrative as the microscope shined upon us? You know it would. And so we need to realize these are our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. They're our spiritual betters. They were great believers, but they were still fallen. And like us, they have weaknesses. So if we receive it in the right spirit, we can learn from their weaknesses. We can be strengthened to overcome our own weaknesses. But this is the same fundamental failing that we see here that we also see in the, with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Because Adam failed to step between his wife and the danger of the serpent, choosing instead to allow her to be between him and the serpent. And that is backwards. And it was that failing on Adam's part that set the stage for Eve to fall and for Adam to follow. Now, Abraham and Isaac are taking that failing one step farther, further because they're not only failing to step between their wife and danger, but they're actually placing their wife between themselves and danger. And it really matters not that Sarah was Abraham's half-sister or that Rebecca was Isaac's cousin. And so you could kind of say, well, that's kind of like a sister, a cousin. Whether they were in some sense a sister was entirely irrelevant, had nothing to do with the situation. What was highly relevant, critically relevant, was that um, Sarah and Rebecca were the wife of Abraham and Isaac. That is critically relevant, and that's what is not mentioned. Furthermore, the scheme that Abraham and Isaac come up with is based on a false premise that the locals would kill a husband to get to the beautiful woman, but they wouldn't kill a brother to get to the beautiful woman. Look, if they're willing to murder a husband, then they certainly would be willing to murder a brother. And finally, these schemes never worked. They always backfired. Sarah was twice taken, and it was only God's miraculous intervention that protected her. And not just protecting her personally, but protecting God's plan of redemption. Because he had promised Sarah would bear a son. So the whole plan of redemption was hanging in the balance. 
Here, Rebekah is not actually taken, but she easily could have been, even as Abimelech points out. All three times we see this scheme employed, Abraham and Isaac ends up getting righteously and publicly rebuked, sometimes by a pagan unbeliever. That's not an ideal situation. And here, when Abimelech learns the truth, no thanks to Isaac, he commands that no one is to touch Rebekah or Isaac. So in other words, in God's providence, it is the truth that works in, that results in uh, protection. It is the lie that's intended to protect that actually results in danger. And I cannot imagine that this scheme could possibly do anything for the marriage relationship between Abraham and Sarah or Isaac and Rebekah. Well, the next trial that Isaac faces is the trial of envy and animosity from the locals owing to God's blessing upon Isaac, verses 12 through 22. Then Isaac sowed in that land. Now, mostly he was a herder, but here we have him sowing crops. Um, But the point is God uh, caused him to reap a hundredfold. So God just pours out uber-abundant blessings upon him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he came very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, and great numbers of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now, sometimes we use the word envy as a, as a form of, a, like a compliment. I envy you, and we mean I, you know, that, that's a nice talent you have. It's a compliment. That's not the way the Bible uses the word. In the Bible, envy is a form of resentment. It is a form of resentment and ill will. So they envied him. And now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. So they're filling them up with earth. This is a result of resentment. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar. So they're still in the overall land of Gerar, but a different part of it. And he dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water. Now these now are old wells dug by Abraham. The Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. Isaac now is digging them out, and he is calling them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, that means quarrel, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, which means enmity or hostility. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, which means room or spaciousness. For he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And then finally, Isaac moves from Gerar to Beersheba in verse 23. And this is where his father Abraham years before had made a covenant with the Abimelech, who was the father or grandfather of the current Abimelech. Now God appears to Isaac in Beersheba 
And he promises again to bless him, even as he blessed Abraham. Verse 24, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. There's that fundamental promise again. I will bless you and multiply your seed, singular, who sums up a whole countless bunch of people, for my servant Abraham's sake. In response, Isaac does what his father Abraham did before him. He builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord publicly in verse 25. And at the same time, it's mentioned that Isaac's servants dig a well. But this is not uh, an extraneous uh, detail that's being thrown in here. These two things are connected because you see it is communion with the living God, that's worship, which is the ultimate wellspring of life. This is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, verse 3. And lo and behold, Abimelech, who was just envious and hostile to Isaac, asking him to depart from Gerar, comes now and seeks a covenant with Isaac, even as his father did with Abraham. Verse 26. In verse 27, Isaac says, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Now, part of this is true, and part of this is false, which Abimelech just said. It is true that no one touched them, nobody physically harmed him. It is not true that they did nothing but good to Isaac because they were stopping up the wells. Uh, They envied them. They had hostility toward them, and they basically drove them out. But here Isaac is gracious. He doesn't point all of that out. He doesn't quibble. He takes the olive branch. He makes the covenant. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it is no coincidence, in verse 32, that on the very same day, Isaac's servants who have been digging the well report that they have found water in the well they just dug. Life is fellowship with God and neighbor. And that is what God gave to Isaac. So what shall we take away from this text as Isaac is being called to walk with God, to trust him, to believe the same promises, and also to face the very same trials that his father Abraham did? Well, I think what we need to take away is just this. It is not in some kind of fairy tale life where we float along above the ground and never get our feet dirty, that God calls us to worship him and to walk with him and to establish his kingdom over the nations. 
It is in the real world with our feet on the ground. It is in this fallen world. It is in the midst of real life. It's in the midst of trials. It's in the midst of difficulties. It's in the midst of being too busy. And it's in the midst of one doggone thing after another. You know what I mean. This is not a mistake. This is the way God wants it. For Christ died and rose to bring many sons to glory. Think about it. Even in the case of Jesus, the flawless man, the sinless man, he had to overcome trials and hardship and opposition in order to stand up to his full height in order for him to become all that it means to be the Son of God and enter into his glory. Hebrews 2 verse 10. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now the word perfect here, it does not mean to go from flawed to flawless or from sinful to sinless. The word perfect here means for something to fully become what it was intended to be. In order for the Son of God, flawless and sinless though He was, to become fully what it means to be the Son of God, He had to face trials and hardships and opposition and enter into His glory. The word suffering here means anything that puts pressure on us. You know how it is when you're going through trials and hardships where you just feel squeezed. You feel like life is just pressing in and you're just under pressure. You're being squeezed. That's what suffering means in the Bible. It's that distress. It's that discomfort and pain that's due to just being squeezed by life's circumstances. It's interesting that Paul mentions four main categories of sufferings, that that pressure and being squeezed in life. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he's speaking from his own experience because Paul had to go through all of that kind of hardship and trial. So he mentions four main categories. The first one is persecution. That would be open hostility or threat or danger from the same imprisonments, beatings, Paul, all these things Paul went through, imprisonment, beatings, stoning, danger from countrymen, threats from the Gentiles, all of that is persecution. The second category is what you might call physical hardship. It's things like hunger, thirst, being without proper clothing, being without proper shelter, being subject to cold and exposure. Paul was shipwrecked. Uh, having difficult or dangerous travels, lack of sleep due to all of that sort of thing. All of that would be under the heading of physical hardship. The third category is hard and grueling work. Hard and grueling work or pressure from the same. Paul talks about that in his letters. He had all the churches he had been part of planning and all the churches that he was caring for. It was hard and grueling work. And the fourth category is worry, concern, and stress over all the things that we just mentioned and 
over all the people that you love, all the people you care about. Paul talks about that. He talks about the worry, concern, and stress that he had for all the churches that he cared for, for their spiritual welfare, everything going on with them. These are the things that put pressure on us in life and cause us distress. And they can easily lead to what Hebrews chapter 12 calls the sin that so easily ensnares us, the the sin that trips us up so easily, the sin that's always right there. It's just, it's right there, it's hanging around. It's like a small dog that's always walking around your legs and your feet as you're trying to walk. It's always getting in the way and tripping you up. It's that sin which Hebrews 12 identifies as weariness and discouragement. And that's what trials and hardship and opposition can produce, a weariness, a tiredness of soul, a discouragement of soul. Well, to avoid that sin, we need to learn from Jesus, who went through the most severe trials and hardship. If we look at Hebrews chapter 5, we get some insight into what was special about Jesus' faithfulness and obedience to God under hardship. Hebrews 5, verse 7. He offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, what two things do we see here that characterize Jesus' obedience under hardship that often is missing from our walk with God? Well, first of all, we see that Jesus' obedience under hardship was wise obedience. It was obedience with wisdom. What we see with Jesus is that he did not panic as though it was some random thing that was happening to him. He understood where he was in the providence and the plan of God. He understood that nothing could touch him apart from the will of his Father. He also understood that nothing would touch him apart from the will of his Father for his good, that he would be made to stand up to his full height and then enter into his glory. Romans 8.28, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Well, what does that mean for all things to work together for our good? The very next verse tells us, for whom he foreknew, whom he set his love upon before, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is for our good is that we be conformed to Christ's image. And whatever it takes is what the Father will send into our lives to conform us into his image. So Jesus' obedience under hardship was wise obedience. He saw life, he understood circumstances as coming to him directly from the hand of God. Secondly, we see that Jesus' obedience was devoted and personal. It was devoted and personal obedience. In other words, it was not stoic obedience. It was not just hunker down, stiff upper lip, just just hunker down and get through it. That is exactly what he did not do. 
It was personal and it was devoted. He turned to his father continually through trial and hardship. That's what it's saying there. He offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard. That is what the father wants us to do. Not to act like he's not in control so we just have to go stoic. But to know that he is in control and he wants us to turn to him in trial and hardship. Philippians 4 verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Well, how do you pull that off? Be anxious for nothing. Be in everything by prayer. That's how you have to do it. You don't do it by being stoic. You turn to the Father in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Make your request to God. Then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And finally, I'm going to add a third thing here, even though it's not in your outlines, but it's important. In trial and hardship, pick one another up. Pick one another up as you see a brother or sister going through trial or hardship. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another. Remember, the word of Christ is food. Not primarily information. Yes, it contains truth and information. But when you're ministering to a brother or sister in danger of being weary and discouraged, nine times out of ten, that brother or sister already knows the information content of the word that you are sharing with them. It's not the information they need. It's the food. It's the strength. It's the encouragement. So in the trials and hardships that we will most certainly face, let's face them like Jesus did, with biblical wisdom, remembering the ways of God, and with devoted personal obedience, turning to the Father repeatedly, apart from whose will no one and nothing can touch us. And let us pick one another up in the name of Jesus. I offer this to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.